This is Psalm of David, Psalm 35. Plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for my help. Also draw out the spear and stop those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Let them be like chaff before the wind and let the angel of the Lord chase them. Let their way be dark and slippery and let the angel of the Lord pursue them. For without cause they have hidden their net for me in a pit, which they have dug without cause for my life. Let destruction come upon them, him unexpectedly, and let his net that he has hidden catch himself into that very destruction. Let him fall. And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders him. Fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting and my prayer would return to my own heart. I paced about as though he were my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. But in my adversity, they rejoiced and gathered together. Attackers gathered against me, and I did not know it. They tore at me and did not cease. With ungodly mockers at feasts, they gnashed at me with their teeth. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue me from the destructions, my precious life from the lions. I will give you thanks in the great assembly. I will praise you among many people. Let them not rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies, nor let them wink with the eye who hate me without a cause. For they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful matters against the quiet ones in the land. They also opened their mouth wide against me and said, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. This you have seen, O Lord. Do not keep silence. O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up yourself and awaken to my vindication, to, to my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Ah, so we would have it. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who rejoice at my hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who exalt themselves against me. Let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause. And let them say continually, Let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. And my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. If you uh, heard the psalm that Paul read earlier and this one here, if you know the New Testament, a lot of those words are speaking directly of Jesus and his cross and the persecution which came against him and uh, what he endured for us. And what we're going to see again today as we continue on in these uh, uh, verses about the life of Joseph. Our, our uh, sermon text today is Genesis 39, 11 through 23, and this sermon is called False Accusations, Unjust Punishment. And as I said last week as I was closing up, if that sounds familiar to something you know in the New Testament, you're right. So here we go. We're going to start with Genesis 39, verse 11. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. 
But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called to the men of the house and spoke to them saying, See, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to mock me. So it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me and after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confirmed, confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Now, I don't know how many of you have felt like uh, the king of the world in one minute and then about as far down in the dumps as you could in the next, but it is not an uncommon theme, both in the Bible and in real life. Joseph was the favored son of his father, but then he was thrown into a pit by his brothers. Then he was taken out of the pit and he was sold to the Arabs, who took him to another country where he was sold again. No sooner was he sold in Egypt than he was exalted to the chief position in his house, but once again, that will come to a screeching halt. Now, I was in Japan about, uh, was probably 20-some years ago now, but I was there for six years, and I had a good friend that uh, I met, a guy named John, and uh, he was married to a Japanese girl, and he uh, bought things <laughs> from uh, a, a guy that sold electronics. You know, he'd buy, like, a stereo or whatever from him. And this guy was there at the beginning when the Americans came in, and he made a ton of money. And then he lost it all. The economy went bad, and then he got it back again. And he told my friend John, he said, you know, my life, I look at my hand, and I think about him in the times when his life isn't going well. And he's looking at his hand thinking, gee, you know, I could be using this for some work today. And he said, I looked at my hand, and I realized my hand is like my life. It just goes up and down and up and down. And that's what we're seeing with Joseph right now, is this, this come and go that happens to many of us in our life. So it's not something unusual. Now, while we look at the details of these stories, I do not want you to hesitate to relate them to your own life. It's a truth that we can't know what's good without what's bad. And we can't truly know what is sweet without comparing it to what is bitter. Unless we get sick, we can't really appreciate what it means to be healthy. Oh God, contrast is what makes the sweet even sweeter. Contrast helps me to know how good feeling good really can be. And knowing the brightness is 100% neater, having walked before in darkness, now in your light, eternally. We can have a general idea about things, but contrast is what helps us to understand things more completely. Joseph's life is one of peaks and valleys, just like that gentleman said about his hand in Japan. But so are ours. Through the good and the bad, the Lord was with Joseph. He was a son of the line of promise, and God was faithful to be with him in every situation. If he was with Joseph, who lived prior to Jesus, how much more sure can we be that he is with us now that we have the full measure of God's love poured out to us through his son? This is why Paul 
confidently tells us again and again about the sure hope and the promises that we have in Jesus Christ. So don't lose sight of this. Joseph was never abandoned, and the Lord will never forsake you either. Our uh, text verse today comes from Isaiah chapter 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways, uh, your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. When Joseph was rejected by his family, he was sold into bondage or thrown into prison. He must have really wondered about the love of God and the promises passed on to him by his father about the God of Abraham. And yet, he is a model example of one who continues to act with integrity in every situation that he faces. Paul was the same way. If you've read the life of Paul, he trusted Jesus with every fiber of his being, even in the most difficult of circumstances. He understood that the Lord's ways are, in fact, higher than our ways, and his thoughts are infinitely above the thoughts that we think. If you can understand this also, then no matter how bad things get, you can know that God is right there, he's with you, and he's directing you through those things to a great finish line. It is his word which allows us to have this confidence. Therefore, let's open it again, let's open it today, and let's see wonderful things, examples that are given to us in Joseph's life from his own trials. And so, may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Of three thoughts for you today, the first is accusing the overseer. Now, I want to give you a quick review of what's happened in the previous verses, just a couple of them. Joseph was sold by his brothers and taken down to uh, Egypt, where he was sold to Potiphar, who is the chief of the executioners. All right. Because of his faithful service in that house, he was eventually elevated to be the overseer of Potiphar's place. In turn, Potiphar's house was more than abundantly blessed. Everything from the house all the way out to the field prospered. Eventually, though, because of his ravishing good looks, Potiphar's wife cast longing eyes on him. She continuously nagged him to lie with her, but he resisted. And now this is where we start up in verse 11. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside. About this time will take us right back to verse 8 of the chapter, which said, And it came to pass, after these things, that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. Potiphar's wife had longing eyes for Joseph, and the burning didn't end the first time that he shunned her. Instead, her passions went right on. She'd been rejected by a handsome slave, and guess what? Being a handsome slave, it probably only made her want him more. In his usual order of duty, we're told that Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside. Now, according to the uh, Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, so this isn't in the Bible, this is just something that a uh, commentator has told us, he said this was that uh, he was there and the house was empty because it was the time of a festival. He tells us that it would be usual for the women to attend these type of things, but instead she had told her husband that she was sick and she wanted to stay home. So this would explain why there's nobody else around, and even Joseph probably did not know that she was home. In verse 10, it implied that he tried to avoid, avoid these type of entanglements. There it said, day by day, that he did not heed her, to lie with her, or to be with her. All right, and that kind of makes me think of what the Lord says in the uh, book of, I think it's 2 Corinthians. He says, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. 
He's trying to stay away from this woman, and she's obviously developed some way of getting into the house, probably without him even knowing it. And the first thing that came to my mind when I was thinking about this this week was Black Friday. You all know what that is. Thanksgiving Day comes, and all of a sudden we have Black Friday where there's sales all over America. And I want you to know, I have no problem with people shopping. I have no problem with people going out on Black Friday. But if you go out on Black Friday and you get beaten up by somebody that wants your TV, it, this has been going on for years now. People know what to expect. They're standing outside of uh, these stores for literally days. They're camped out in order to be the first one to buy something at 12.01 on Black Friday. And this week, somebody lost his life over a TV. We have people that are in jail, dozens, dozens of them, after beating each other up over stuff that is going to be in the garbage a couple months from now. And you have to wonder to yourself, am I doing what's right by going, getting myself into that type of a situation? Once again, go shopping if you want. But he has been trying to avoid this woman. He's not trying to go into the house when she's there. He's trying to avoid her. He's doing what's right. He's coming out from among them and being separate, as Paul would say, so that the Lord would receive him. And this is what we need to do, even if it means shopping on Black Friday by waiting until 12 in the afternoon and going to a discount store instead of to the store that's got the newest stuff. Whatever. Just use common sense about these type of things. Verse 12, that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. Now in verse 8, and this is something I want you to pay attention to, the exact same words, shikba imi, lie with me, are used. Since verse 8, no other words are recorded as being spoken by this woman. And so here we see the Bible do what it does many, many times. It is showing the depth of the intent of a statement by a person by exactly repeating it without any intermediary words. This repetition by Potiphar's wife is intended to show us the perverse nature of this woman and the determined purpose she has in pursuing this course until she wears Joseph out. Such repetitions, and you know this, they're used in films and in TV shows all the time nowadays. One person is introduced and he says something, and from time to time he's reintroduced into the story or the movie, and he says exactly the same thing every single time that he shows up. And if you want to know where this type of thing came from, I would say the Bible is a top candidate as a guess for this. It shows, because of this, how the Bible understands the nature of humanity. It records things like this. Even if they didn't get that idea from the Bible, it shows us that the Bible understands these things. If God is the creator, and he is, and if this is his word, and it is, then it, you know that it's going to give us insights into the nature of man in a way that is timeless. And it's little insights like these that are amazing for their literary and their anthropological value. That's the study of man. This is the definitive study of man. And so when we read it and we perceive these type of things in the Bible, and then we see them happening in human history, we can say, look at the marvel of this word. He, he was way, up, way ahead of Hollywood in this type of thing. Now, I want to tell you that I've read the Bible many, many times. And after about the 20th time that I read it, I started thinking, I want to find a new way of approach, approaching the Bible every time that I read it. And so what I did is I started looking for interesting things like this every time I read it. One of those times I searched for every time that such a repetition is seen in the Bible. And I found about a hundred or so of them. And then what I did is I cataloged them and I uh, put them by book and I put them in order, in alphabetical order, and I made all kinds of little diagrams and stuff. 
I have no idea why I did that because I've never used it for anything. But it helps you to get an understanding of what God is telling you when you do this. So if you take the time as you're reading the Bible, I want to look for one particular thing that when you do that, I think you're going to find something that's simply wonderful. These things will be tucked away and you'll say, you know, I'm glad I did this. They're fantastic little treasures that are given by God that may have never been seen by anybody ever in human history before. And the reason why I say that is because, yes, we've had the Bible for 2,000 years, but it's only since about the past 500 years that it's been in printed edition. And then after that, you know, it was, wasn't a common thing to have them, but really it started to take off in about the 1800s and the 1900s that people had their own Bible. And so the things that we get out of it, other than what scholars of the past that had their own copy of the Bible, which was rare, we're getting new things all the time out of it. So as you're reading the Bible, I would ask you to, to think, I'm going to do this particular type of study along with my reading, and you're going to find treasure unimaginable. It is an infinite resource of wisdom and beauty that we can pursue if we simply take the time to do it. Yes, Lord, Charlie is right about this one for sure. Searching your word will only help me as I grow day by day. So give me a hunger to pursue you more and more. And in the study of your word, my hunger I will allay. Verse 12 continues. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. In the Middle East, even today in some cultures, but throughout all of the Middle East at the time of this story, the people wore garments that were, you know, loose around the body. You see the Saudi Arabian people still do this today. It's hot over there. If you've ever been there, you know it. And so having something like this would have been cool, and yet it's kind of fashionable. Slave garments probably would have been different than the uh, material or the style or the color or some other way of the uh, common people. It would identify them as slaves. But even their garments would have followed the general motif of the day. In Joseph's case, she got hold of this thing. And what she was probably doing was probably trying to pull him closer because you know that a touch is going to excite a lot more than just words. And so maybe she was hoping that this would finally do the trick. Instead, he runs away with either very little or nothing at all on, depending on you know how, how he was wearing his garment. The exact same thing happened at the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was uh, praying just before his arrest. One of Jesus' disciples fled from the guards in the, uh, at the time that he was being arrested. And here's what the account says. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. So he had nothing on under this. And the young man laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Now because Mark is the only one who records this in his gospel, it's believed that he's actually writing about himself. Both Matthew and John do exactly the same thing in their gospels when they write about themselves in the third person. But the contrast is notable. Joseph fled for the honor of what is right. Mark fled in the disgrace of doing what was wrong. One fled to God in righteousness. The other fled from God in cowardice. One will be punished for doing the right thing, and the other will be forgiven for doing the wrong thing. Such is the marvelous tapestry of God's word as it unfolds right before us. And such are the lessons for us to learn ourselves. We very well may be punished for doing something that's right. We're pursuing righteousness, and somebody comes along and punishes us for it. That's coming, I believe, in the world more and more as we go about our, our lives. But God is watching, and he's recording our actions in those cases for future rewards. Likewise, 
We may take the wrong course and we may run from what we know is right. And God is there. He's watching and he's recording in order to demonstrate his great mercy on us, the objects of his affection. Never underestimate the grandeur of the ability of God to use your rights as well as your wrongs in amazing ways in life. Now, I'll give you a perfect example of somebody that uh, uh, kind of fits this mold is a guy named C.S. Lewis. If you know who he is, he's a great Christian. He's a Christian apologist. He's a great Christian philosopher. And um, he was uh, originally baptized into the Anglican Church. And about the age of 15, he walked away. He became a uh, self-proclaimed atheist. He read something by a guy named Lucretius. Here's what Lucretius said. Had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. Okay, so this guy Lucretius uh, uh, said that because there's evil in the world, because there's all these problems in the world, it can't have been made by God. Because if it was, we wouldn't have all of these problems. And he read that and he thought, oh, that makes sense. And so he walked away from his faith. But being an honest sort of person, he uh, evaluated that. And uh, along the process, he actually said something that's kind of funny. He said he was very angry with God for not existing. So you talk about a, a conflict in your thinking right there. You can't be angry at something that doesn't exist. So he's angry at God for not existing. In other words, he knows that God is there. He started thinking these type of things through. And then he realized that there must be a God. The very fact that we have evil in the world shows us that there's a God because he allows us to make the choices rather than himself. And he thought these type of things through. And in the end, he became one of the greatest Christian apologists of all time. And you know, one of the sad things about C.S. Lewis that brought him to mind is that my brother was telling me that he died on the same day as JFK. And so his uh, death was completely overshadowed by the death of JFK. And so he didn't really get the, the due that he deserved in his burial. But I assure you that the Lord is there rewarding him for all of his efforts that he put forth. And this is the kind of guy that once ran from God and then he finally came back to God, just as we're seeing in this contrast between Joseph and Mark. Anyway, verse 13. And it, so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside. Now, with all of the intrigue that the world has seen, you got to wonder. Joseph's actions are all the more surprising. How many times have lovers planned ways of overthrowing homes or spouses or even entire empires? If he wanted this woman, he could have turned the situation into a cunning plot that may have brought him freedom and even wealth. But instead, he turns and he runs. In The Morning Bride, if you've ever uh, read that play, it's by William Congreve. The actress Zara says this in Acts chapter 3. A lot of people ascribe this to Shakespeare. It wasn't him. It was William Congreve. He says, Heaven has no rage like love to hatred turned, nor hell a fury like a woman scorned. I wonder if Congreve was thinking about this particular verse and what happened to Potiphar's wife when he wrote those words. The woman is scorned by a slave who is more righteous than she is. And so with his garment in her hand, she can now take out her fury in place of the passion that she's lost. Verse 14, that she called to the men of the house and spoke to them saying, see, he has brought, us to, uh, brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. The term Hebrew has not been used since Genesis 14, verse 13, when it was first introduced into the pages of the Bible. In other words, this is only the second time in all of Scripture 
that this word is used. If Israel is the national identity of the people, the term Hebrew, although somewhat synonymous, is something deeper. It's the calling of that national group. Our national identity, for example, is American. But who we are as a people, first and foremost, should be Christians. Somebody asks who you are, you say, I'm a Christian. I'm a U.S. citizen, but I'm a Christian. This is the force and the effect of the term Hebrew. Jonah, if you know the story of him getting swallowed up by a whale, they have this great storm going on in the boat around him, and the people ask him, who are you? You know, what are you doing here? He says, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He was identifying himself with the collective group of people who are spiritually tied to the Lord Jehovah. To Jonah, who identified in his statement the why of the circumstances which had brought about what had happened in, in the first place. You got the storm that's going on. It's because I am the one that serves the Lord God of heaven and earth. If you see why he's saying that, he's tying himself spiritually to the actual creator, Jehovah. The term uh, Hebrew is derived from Abraham's great, 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 great grandfather. The guy's name is Eber. Eber means he who crossed over. And it signifies that he and his family are the ones who crossed over the Euphrates River from the land of Babel, which is the area of apostasy from all truth and all uh, right spirituality. But this was more than just a physical crossing of a river. It was a spiritual crossing over, hence the title first being used of Abraham, not the grandfather Eber. Potiphar's wife is probably calling him a Hebrew here as a way of shaming him. In essence, she might be saying, this guy calls himself a Hebrew. If that is what a Hebrew is, then what a bad thing being a Hebrew must be. Joseph had done nothing wrong, and yet he was being maligned by the use of his identity. And this is exactly the same intent concerning the word Christian, which is used by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4. Here's what he says. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. It is the biblical model that suffering for what is right is what's commendable. Lord the thought of suffering doesn't make me tickle with joy, but to suffer for your name is the highest honor of all. And so give me the determination to a humble attitude employ when suffering comes. Yes, Lord, on the day of such a call. Something important happens here for us to see in this verse, though. I don't know if you caught it, whether you saw it or not. Potiphar's wife has indicted her husband in this verse. She says, see, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. The accusation of Joseph's actions fall on the one who appointed Joseph. And this is the same thing that's seen in Jesus. Paul, citing the 69th Psalm, shows the same attitude towards Jesus Christ as we see in this verse about Joseph and Potiphar. Here he writes, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Joseph sets the example, and the ultimate realization of it is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. Joseph was stripped of his garments and suffered, suffered shame in the process. Jesus was likewise stripped of his garments, and he bore the reproach of many who surrounded him. However, the accusation of Christ is an accusation against God. The question is then, and we should ask this of ourselves, should we, 
If we are wrongly accused for our faith as Christians, feel that we are above these things. And the answer is no. We should feel honored if we suffer for having done right and still maintained our integrity. In the case of Joseph, the very thing that he had run from is what he is being accused of. And in the process, Potiphar now shares in the blame. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. All wrongs will be made right. Someday, Potiphar's wife will stand in the presence of the Lord and receive her fair sentence, as we all will. Jesus said these words in Matthew chapter 12. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Those who wrongly accuse us may have the temporary victory, but in the end it is the faithful follower of Jesus Christ who runs to God and away from sin that will be exalted. So don't forget this when it's time to speak up, especially about moral issues. And I mean this absolutely 100%, these moral issues that are very quickly degrading our society. God does have your back. And I want to tell you, that is exactly why I think that doing a prophecy update is of more value at this point in history than doing this day in history. It's because these moral changes in our society are happening so quickly that we can't even keep up with them mentally anymore. But all we need to do is just go back and look at the, the uh, life that we lived 10 years ago, the standards in our military, the standards in our schools, and compare them with what we have today. And it shows us the absolute importance of maintaining our integrity. And you can't do that without knowing your word. You cannot maintain your integrity without being grounded in the word of God and your faith in Jesus Christ. It is not possible. Verse 15, And it happened when he lifted, when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out, that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. Now, how would a lady explain having a man's garment in her hand? A loud yell would do it. Verse 11 says that none of the men of the house was inside. So the only way to feign innocence would be to claim that she yelled loud enough for everyone to hear, when in fact she knew that there was no one there that would. But the story will work because it plausibly explains why she would have the garment of Joseph when he was stronger than her. Our second thought today, the oldest trick passing the buck. Verse 16, so she kept his garment with her until her master came home. Potiphar's wife is using Jacob's garment to accuse him. This is a parallel to what Jesus happened, experienced in his own life. In uh, Luke chapter 23, it says, then Herod, who's the king at the time, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. Later in John chapter 19, we read this, so then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again, and he said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. The robe of Jesus first placed on him by Herod and which was taken off to scourge him before being put back on him, was used as an accusation against him. In essence, it was to imply that he was an usurper of the ruler, who to Israel is God alone. 
By wearing a king's garments, it implies that he is the king. This is exactly what Potiphar's wife is accusing Joseph of. By trying to sleep with her, he would usurp Potiphar's authority because she was the one that was withheld from Joseph and the only thing that was withheld from Joseph. Time and again, every single detail is pointing to the work of Jesus Christ. The meticulous work of God in using the real details of real lives is simply amazing. In the case of Joseph, it's even more so. Not only is he recorded to show us what would come in Jesus Christ, but also how God would deliver Israel when they went down to Egypt. But that deliverance of Israel is given again to show the work of Christ. So God is building upon every single story in this intricately meticulous and marvelous way. Every detail is speaking of his entry into the stream of humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. And yet people, they knock on wood. They hang a little feng shui thing in their corner. Maybe they've got a dream catcher on their, uh, their uh, rear view mirror in their car. They pray to Mary. They pray to popes. They pray to priests. They worship their pastors in their church. And what do they do? They miss the astonishing love which is found in those nail-scarred hands that are longingly held out to us. Do you want a syringe full of Jesus along with all the other medicines of the day? Or do you want to just clothe yourself in Jesus Christ and be found accepted by God because of what he did? Because all of those other things and all of those other people that we get distracted by are only that. They're distractions. And so I'll stop right now and I'll tell you my two favorite verses in the whole Bible. First is Hebrews 3 verse 1. And it's only the first couple words of it. Let us fix our thoughts on Jesus. The Bible never asks us to focus on anything except for God. Ever. And then we come to my favorite verse in the Bible. It's almost the same thought. It's from Hebrews 12, verse 2. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. If you got your eyes on Jesus, chances are you got your thoughts on him as well. But when you get all of these little distractions in your life, these little things that take your eyes off of Jesus, you miss the grace that God is trying to show you. Only Christ died on the cross, and only Christ can reconcile you to God. There is no other way. That's what the Bible teaches. So either this book is false and we're wasting our time right now or we need to get our life and our doctrine right before we lay our head down for the last time. There's only two options. There are no other options. Either this is false or it's true. And if it's true, pay attention to it. Verse 17, Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to mock me. The accusation she said to those around her, she now states directly to Potiphar. The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us. This is exactly, this is exactly what Adam did to the Lord when he was confronted with the first sin of mankind. Back in Genesis verse three, uh, chapter 3, we see the first example ever of passing the buck from one's own, one, one's own guilt to that of somebody else. Here's what it said there. And he, this is the Lord, said, Who do you, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman you gave to be with me. She gave of the tree, and I ate. So he's finding fault everywhere but himself. God, you made her. She made me do it. Potiphar's wife, just like Adam, places the blame for her own sin on him. 
And in turn, Joseph is the recipient of her deserved punishment. Fortunately for us, and I mean this sincerely, fortunately for us, we have a recipient of our own. Jesus will bear our guilt just as Joseph will be forced to bear the guilt of this woman. Verse 18, so it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. Now there is truth mixed with lies in this verse. Statements which will convict an innocent man. The same happened with Jesus. He stood in front of several councils prior to his crucifixion and people came with testimony that was only partly true or that was misconstrued. He had actually done no wrong, but he was tried and he was found guilty. And the pattern which is first seen here in Joseph is ultimately realized in who he is picturing. Joseph is the falsely accused overseer of Potiphar's house. Jesus is the falsely accused overseer of God's house. And so here we have in this verse an amazing picture of man's fall and his redemption. Adam was found naked after disobeying God. Joseph was stripped of his garment. Jesus was stripped of his garment. Adam blames God by saying that he gave her the woman. Potiphar's wife blames Potiphar, picturing God by saying he brought the Hebrew into them. And the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of Jesus' time blamed God, as is noted in Matthew 27. It says this, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now and we will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. After Adam's transgression, God covered Adam with a, you know, a garment of skin. After Joseph is cast into the pit, he will be brought out and he'll be clothed in the finest linen garments of all of Egypt. And when Jesus was brought out of the tomb, he received his heavenly garments. But even more, he now grants us the same white garments of righteousness, lost by Adam at the fall, pictured by Joseph in this particular passage we're looking at. And so we see that in Christ, the circle is complete in returning man to a state of undefiled righteousness in God's presence. Pictured here as the events of Joseph's life continue to unfold. The call rings out, not guilty, though I have sinned so many times. And I look and I see a man hanging bloody on a tree. My guilt was transferred to his cross, thus excusing all my crimes. What kind of love has been poured out on undeserving me? Our third thought today, the king's prisoner. Verse 19, so it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, your servant did to me after this manner that his anger was aroused. Potiphar's anger is aroused at what happened, but it doesn't say at who. We infer that it's Joseph, but it's not specific. It could have said his anger was aroused at Joseph. The Bible does this quite often. An example of this is when Moses is alone with the Lord. If you know the story, there's a bush burning over there. Let me turn aside and take a look at it. And he walks up to the bush and the bush calls out to him, Moses, Moses, he says, take off your feet. This is holy ground. Takes off his, or take, take off your sandals, I'm sorry. And so he does. And the Lord asks him to do something. He says, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if I can do this. And the Lord says something else, and he says, but. And the Lord speaks to him again. What if they don't believe me? And then finally he says, Lord, I've not 
I don't have, I can't speak well. I don't have a suitable tongue to speak. Can't you find somebody else to do? He's making all these excuses. And what does it say there? This is the Lord and Moses. They're the only two in this picture. It says in Exodus chapter four. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is it not, is not Aaron the Levite, your brother? I know that he can speak well. Nobody else in the picture. And yet it identifies Moses. But in this picture of Joseph, it doesn't say who he's angry at. I believe that Joseph's name is omitted because it pictures Christ. God's anger was aroused at the sin that it occurred, but it was aroused in a unique way in Jesus Christ. He became the substitute for our sin. What we've done wrong was in fact judged in him. This is why Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane said these words, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup of God's wrath was handed to Jesus and he drank it down to its dregs in our place, despite being innocent of any wrongdoing. Potiphar's anger was aroused and he took it out on an innocent man. Looking at the next verse, we can see this more clearly too. Verse 20, then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. Joseph was Potiphar's property. And Potiphar is the captain of the executioners. If he believed that Joseph was truly guilty, he certainly would have had him ex executed. But because of the accusations of his wife, which could not be substantiated, he took a course of action which shows us the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. He sent Joseph to the place where the <clears throat> king's prisoners were confined. In Hebrew, the term is Beit HaSohar, the roundhouse. It is a very unusual term in the pages of the Bible. It's used only eight times in the pages of the Bible. And guess what? All eight are found in this account and nowhere else. The Jewish writer Mercer observes, here's what he says, that it was made underground and at the top of it was a hole which led in light and which into it they, and which they went into it. Now that is a convincing description of what we would think of as the tomb of Jesus. A round area cut out of a stone with an entrance which could be covered. Joseph has taken the blame for what she did, even though Potiphar surely knew that he was innocent. Jesus took the blame for what we have done, even though he is innocent. Every sin will be punished. The Bible makes that absolutely clear. It will either be punished in us or it would be punished in a substitute. What this account seems to show us is that precept, even down to the location, a round hole dug out of rock. And what is this trying to tell us then? We, we are Potiphar's wife, standing there accusing God, and somebody else is taking our guilt and our punishment and being thrown into a round hole in the ground. We our Potiphar's wife. We're looking at this lady like she's trash and look at the bad things she did. That's us. That's the lesson the Bible's trying to tell us about this woman. Go look in the mirror at the things that you've done and then relate them to the person of Jesus without any sin at all. And yet he took our punishment. I can't believe it. It's, it's beyond me to think this through and to see what's being pictured here. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. If the sentence of Joseph pictures the sentencing of Jesus, 
then the Lord's presence with Joseph in that sentence is to be seen in the same way towards Jesus. In death, the Lord was with him. Joseph was never abandoned by the Lord, even though he suffered for a crime that he did not commit. And Jesus was not left abandoned when he suffered for our crimes. The favor of the Lord was with him, and it remained with him. Thus the words of the psalm are true. The most repeated words in the entire Bible, his mercy endures forever. In Psalm 16, verse 10, it goes on to say, For you shall not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Jesus was raised from the tomb to become the ruler of all of God's kingdom. Joseph will be imprisoned, but he won't be abandoned. Instead, he will be brought out and he will be made the ruler over all of Pharaoh's kingdom. And you know what? This is the great thing. We were talking about this in Bible study this morning. We will rule with Christ. We who are guilty, but have been forgiven through Jesus Christ, will rule with him. Revelation chapter 2 says these words, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And how is that possible? It's because Jesus says in the book of Revelation, I hold the keys of Hades and death. No other human being in history has ever come out of the tomb. Only Jesus has. And because he has led the way, he can now lead us in that procession. But we have to be in Christ or it's not going to happen. He holds the keys of Hades and of death. Verse 22. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. Again, we're asked to, be, uh, to look at this from the view of a prophetic perspective. There's no doubt about it. If all of the other aspects of what has happened have pointed to Jesus, then we surely can see the same in this verse as well. It is Jesus who has been given authority over all of those who are in the prison of the tomb. He has complete authority over all souls of all men that are in the grave. You know, we take passages like this and we make sermons about how to live nobly in different difficult circumstances, which, by the way, is true. But we miss what God is trying to show us. The details of Joseph's life were selected to show us the magnificence of the work of Jesus. There isn't a verse yet which hasn't brought us closer to an understanding of him and of his glory. And if we get this right, and if we can focus on that, then all of the living right concepts will follow, and the right applications will be much more pronounced in our own lives. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Learn his word, and all of these things will come out as fruits in your own life. Jesus prevailed so that we can prevail. The Lord was with Joseph to show us that the Lord is with Jesus. And if we are in Christ, then the Lord is with us. Even in death, we have the absolute assurance that he is the overseer of our lives and of our souls. Who wouldn't want to live right with that kind of knowledge? Verse 23, our final verse of the day. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Having taken everything that we've seen from the, in this particular section uh, and viewed it from the lens of the work of Christ, we can take this last verse and we can see it completely realized in him. Christ was in the grave, the prison of Joseph, if you will. The Lord was with him in whatever he did. The Lord made him prosper. Think on that. As I read you this familiar passage from Isaiah chapter 53, I'm sure you've heard it a million times. It almost mirrors exactly 
what we've seen in Joseph today and in Jesus in the time to come. Think of the, the uh, prison as the tomb, okay? And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. This is the king's prison. So he's there with the rich, all right? In his death, in the tomb, in the prison, and in the tomb. Start again. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Think of Potiphar's wife. Think of you and me. All right, it goes on. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. They both come out to be the rulers. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. If you're in prison, you're in with the transgressors, no doubt. And he bore the sin of many and he made intercession for the transgressors. We're going to see that in next week's sermon. Hallelujah for the work of the Lord and for the beautiful pictures of the work which has been given to show us of his coming. Matthew Henry, who I don't quote very often, he gets a little wordy to me, but uh, he stated this about today's passage so eloquently. I want to read it to you. Listen to what he says concerning the life of Joseph and how he pictures Jesus. He says, let us not forget through Joseph to look unto Jesus, who suffered being tempted, yet without sin, who was slandered and persecuted and imprisoned, but without cause, who by the cross ascended to the, to the throne, May we be enabled to follow the same path in submitting and in suffering to the same place of glory. All of these many stories, the pictures, the patterns, they're wonderful to see and they tell us the truth of the soundness of our faith. But without faith, they're just interesting stories which seem to have no final goal or purpose. In God's redemptive plan, though, they come into focus. First, in the preparation, the care, and the redemption of the Jewish people. But even that only points to the greater work of Christ. If the redemption of Israel was the end of the story, it would be a sad, sad story for the rest of the people of the world. But through them, Israel, through them, God did something even more marvelous. He sent his own son, Jesus, to provide redemption to all mankind. If you've never understood this beautiful work and how important it is to you, then I'd like just another minute to explain this and to share the love of God which is found in Jesus Christ to you. You too can be freed from the prison which holds all humans captive, all because of him. The Bible says that we've sinned. We saw that in Adam. We see that in Potiphar's wife picturing us. It says that we have violated God's law and there is a rift now between us and our creator and it is a rift that we cannot breach or, or bridge back. A finite sin against an infinite creator infinitely separates you from that creator. There's no way to go back before the sin. We're in time and we're going this way. And we cannot attain to the infinite. And so God, who is infinite, came out of his state and united with human flesh in the womb of Mary. And he is the God-man. He's finite in his manhood. He's infinite in his godhood. And so he can be that bridge between the finite and the infinite. 
And he says, I will take my righteousness, proven by the fulfillment of the law, which is documented in the Gospels, and I will give it to you if you simply call on me as Lord, if you will simply accept that I have taken the punishment that you deserve. And you have a choice now because either the punishment is going to be meted out in you or it's going to be meted out in him. There are only two choices. Logically, we don't even need the Bible to think this through. Just logically, we can figure this out. The only thing that's left out of the logical equation that we can deduce is Jesus. And that had to be given to us by what's called special revelation, the Bible. The Bible tells us of Jesus, God's love for the people of the world. And so he did. He sent him. And he lived that life. And he gave it up on the cross for us. And it's all summed up in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Choices to make. Everybody's got choices to make. Make the right choice and do it today. And I have a closing verse to you to, for you today from Proverbs 6. Think of Potiphar's wife in this and think of you and me in this. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. We're all guilty of one of those, just as Potiphar's wife was guilty of most of them in this account. What, the, what kind of love is it that God would cover our sins when we've done all of these things? I, I just can't get beyond it. What a great God. What a great God. Make the right choice and call on Jesus. Next week is Genesis 40, 23 verses. This is going to be a lot of verses, even though it's no longer than any normal sermon. But uh, it's a fun account. And I hope you're going to see some kind of nifty stuff in there. It's called The Spirits in Prison. That'll be our 99th Genesis sermon. And as I said earlier, I hope the Lord comes back before we get to 100. We'll see. <laughs> I'll tell you this before I give you our final closing poem of the day. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you, so call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. Our poem today is called The Overseer in Prison. But it happened about this point when Joseph went into the house where Potiphar did abide to do his work in that lavish joint and none of the men of the house was inside. That she caught him by his garment as she planned, saying, lie with me, but he denied. He left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And so it was when she looked that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside. Yes, he booked. His 50-yard dash was really quite grand. That she called to the men of her house and spoke to them as she said, See, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to lie with me to take me to bed. Then I cried out with a loud voice. I had to, you see. I just had no choice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that his garment to me was transferred. And he fled and went outside, scared, no doubt. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, Something happened, sweetie, while I was here alone. The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to mock me. Let me tell you about the fuss. So it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside, scared, no doubt. I'm telling you the truth, sweetie pie. You do believe me. So it was when his master heard the words of this deceitful planner, the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. 
things were looking grim. Then Joseph's master took him in kind and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And there he was there after his master's anger had arisen. But the Lord was with Joseph all right and showed him mercy, you know. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Yes, this is so. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were there. Joseph's skills were noted as quite grand. Whatever they did there, it was his doing, because Joseph was honorable in all he was pursuing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under his authority, because the Lord was with him in that darkened nook. He found favor in the Lord's eyes, you see. And whatever he did, the Lord made it thrive. And so this is how in prison Joseph did survive. We, like Potiphar's wife, are guilty too. But Jesus took our place. And now through him we can have life anew. Our condemned state God will with eternal life replace. Let us never forget that high, high price that was paid for us at Calvary, where for our sins his blood did suffice, the payment made to set us free. Thank you, O God, for our Lord Jesus and the marvelous work he accomplished for us. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, I, it's just, it, it's astonishing how perfect your word is. When we look at it through the lens of Christ, everything comes into focus, including our sin. It's even magnified. It's like there's a giant magnifying glass over our hearts telling us to just look. Look at what we've done to offend you and look at what you have done to lavish mercy and grace upon us. How absolutely wonderful is the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that every person here will reflect on his glory. And because it's the 1st of December, Lord, I'd like to prompt every person here and every person that listens to this video that they would make a commitment in the month of December to tell somebody about Jesus Christ and then to tell somebody else and then to tell somebody else and to stick to that commitment until they've actually done it and to spread the word that there is redemption and there is pardon for sin and that there is life ever, everlasting because of the marvelous work of Jesus. That's my challenge to them today and that's my hope from you that you will be with them and remind them of that until they spread this great word, this gospel, this saving message. And we thank you for it. We thank you for our Lord Jesus and all he's done for us. And so it's in his glorious glorious name that we pray. Amen.